You be seated. You know that uh, last song. Oh, that's by Todd Agnew. Is that right? By Todd Agnew. It's a striking thing to me in that song. It's so contrary to much of the theology taught today. Part of that song is based out of Luke chapter 15, The Lost Sheep. I've been studying evangelism in my own life for the last couple weeks pretty intensely. been sharing that with some of you, how much challenge there's been to my lack of a desire for evangelism. Some of that came out in last week's sermon. And you may have caught it as me preaching at you when in actuality it was me preaching to myself. Because one of the things that is true is that Seth and I talked this week that you will be passionate and burdened about what I'm passionate and burdened about. Um, that's, that's just true of any, anybody that leads a group of people. Um, and if you look at your heroes, you'll see that you're passionate about what they're passionate about. And you follow them in that. And that's the way God made us, in a sense. But in that song, one of the passages I studied this week in my own time was Luke 15, where it says, where it talks, Jesus tells the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son, or the prodigal son. The common theme in those is what? This, to take you off the hook. He didn't go to look for a goat that he could turn into a sheep. He went to find his sheep. The song said that. Your sheep are lost. We're weary. We're tired. We're broken. Shepherd, help us. The misconception in the world today is that there's some magical work the church needs to do to convert people. And there's not. God has done all the work in His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, there are people out there who are sheep that are lost from the fold. And the Lord Jesus is finding them. And He's doing it through His church. Through humble, broken vessels like me and you. So when you share the gospel... Your objective is not to convince a goat, somebody who has no work of God in their life, to become a sheep. All you do is share the truth so that the scales, the Holy Spirit takes the scales off the eyes so that the shepherd picks them up in his gospel and brings them home. You're not the power unto salvation. Neither am I. So don't take that on yourself. That guilt of feeling like a failure. Don't take that. It's not yours. You haven't failed. The success of evangelism is in opening the mouth and telling the gospel. That's success. It's success every time you open your mouth and share about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Point blank. The sheep that are there will hear that gospel and the shepherd, Jesus Christ, will bring them to the fold. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. I will lose none of them. All the Father has given me will come to me, and I will by no means cast them out. I have many sheep that are not of this fold in John 10. I will get them also and then make one sheepfold with one flock of sheep. Isn't that the voice of Jesus? Isn't that what he said? Paul wrote it this way. 
The power of God unto salvation is the gospel. The just shall live by faith. I told Heath this morning, he's going to teach on Habakkuk. I'm not going to steal your message, Heath. Next week, he's going to teach at Sunday school on Habakkuk. Paul thought so much of Habakkuk that Romans is simply an exposition of that one verse. The just shall live by faith. And Paul wrote the letter, the epistle, to the Roman church. It's amazing. He's the greatest expositor of the Old Testament outside of Jesus Christ to ever walk the face of the earth. It's amazing what he's done. He also wrote for us 2 Corinthians chapter 9, (laughs) which uh, last week you got the first five verses were read aloud, and then I changed course. Um, But we're going to preach those verses this morning. If you'll take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we want to look at this message which I've entitled, Grace Giving Must Be Encouraged. Grace Giving Must Be Encouraged. While you're turning there, i like for you to turn there because, number one, I think it does something for you to see the words of God in print, to follow them in your word, in your scripture. Second of all, my outline comes directly from those verses. So there's nothing ingenious about what I'm going to say today. If you have your Bible, it's there. I'm simply expounding on it, expanding on it in a sense, making it easily understood, hopefully, if I've done a good job. I um, was studying this text really uninspired. The last message I preached in 2 Corinthians 8 and then this one, they seem to be real perfunctory in a sense, kind of like Paul taking care of household business with the Corinthians and nothing really meaty for us. That's how I kind of felt about it at the beginning. And God changed my heart in that. And I think there's one of the reasons that I struggled with these passages is they're extremely practical. And a guy like me is very comfortable in heady, deep, doctrinal truth. I'm also very hesitant about practical things sometimes from the pulpit because I'm afraid I'll misapply them. Or that I'll limit you in some way and, and, and crush your creative ability and so that you think the only way this applies is the way Carlton said it applies. So don't let either of those be true. If, if I am not uh, very practical in the message, um, I'll try to be that. And if I'm not, forgive me. And then if I seem to limit you to only see it the way I see it, um, and there's no other greater possibility there, then maybe the Holy Spirit will take what I've said and use it anyway to expand the thought. Grace giving has to be encouraged. 2 Corinthians 9, 1-5, I want to read those to you since we didn't read them earlier in the service. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for, of, for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift 
not as a requirement or an exaction. What do we see in these verses? Well, first of all, I think we see that the Christian concern for the suffering of other Christians is common in Paul's day. Look there in verses 1 and then the first part of chapter of verse 2. He says, it's really meaningless for me to write to you about these needs of the saints. Why is it meaningless? Because the common need of all of the saints was known throughout the world and they all had a burden for it. He's not, he's not having to stir up in these people this new zeal, this new hope to help their hurting brother. It's already present. It's just a, it's an outflow of the love of God, the grace of God in their own life. And so it's natural, I would say. It's very natural in Paul's day and in our day that, the, that when Christians are suffering, that we have concern for their suffering. It's one of the things that concerns me about the church in the United States is the lack of concern for our suffering brothers. Suffering brothers in this city who have no home, possibly, who lack covering for their bodies or food to fill their stomachs. And we seem to come across as that middle class church that James writes to when he says, be careful that you do not say to them, be warm and be filled and send them on their way with no help. Isn't it better that you give them something to eat that you cover their bodies, right? He said, isn't it better to do that than to simply wish them be warm and be filled? It doesn't do them any good to tell them that they need to be warm and filled. They have no resource to get what they need. And so he's saying it's better to do it. And isn't that the way the Christian church often acts in our day? The middle class church of America and then the upper class church of America, which we're a part of that church. So I'm not pointing fingers here at anybody we are that church that it is simple for us to say to those who are dying dying in poverty for us to say to them well they ought to be warm and be filled with no help it's also very easy for us to look across the sea Because we're on this great island, this bastion of capitalism, which has prospered. It's easy for us to look across the sea at a hurting world and say to them while they starve, well, they ought to be warm at night and they ought to get enough to eat. I can remember as a child seeing the commercials. Many of you grew up in that era and some of you were already past growing up and and were adults in the era where poverty became the big issue. You remember uh, Bono, who I spoke of earlier and a couple messages ago, and I know that some of you may have took what I said wrong. I have no problem with Bono. None. I'm going to say that clearly. You know why I have no problem with him? Because he's doing all he knows to do to make aware, the world aware of the problems that exist. <laughs> Some people question him. I question some of what he does too. Don't, don't get me wrong. Some of his style doesn't match my style. I will say this. I believe he's an Irish Christian. I know that scares some of you. Because <laughs> you hear his music and you say, how can that guy be saved? 
But I've, I've, I know he's not perfect in his theology. But I have heard a real heart that comes not out of guilt. This man's not motivated by guilt. He's motivated, I believe, rightly, because he loves the Lord. And he's broken and angry at the church in America because of what I'm talking about. The lack of concern he sees in evangelical, middle-class, Protestant churches in this nation as they thumb their nose at Africa. And they say, well, they'll always be that way. Who can help those people? I remember as a kid, my, growing up hearing my dad and others say, well, if they hadn't cut all those trees down over there, they could grow some crops. All their topsoil went and washed away. Well, that's good. Now, that's an agricultural way to look at it. A little historical problem there. They didn't cut their own trees down for the most part. White people went in and raped the land for their own benefit and left them with nothing. And now that same world looks at them and says, well, your problem's not my problem. That didn't exist in the church in Corinth. They had a lot of problems. We're going to see that when we study the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians. We'll see they got all kinds of problems. One of their problems is that they are very immoral in many ways, but they are not hard-hearted towards those who are hurting. They have a real broken concern for their brothers, their Christian brothers, and just in the poverty that surrounds them, and they have a real desire. So Paul says, I'm not going to write to you begging you again. It's not really a need to do that. They were willing to give, verse 2 says. They were, he was confident of their willingness to give. They, in fact, had already committed a year earlier to give to this offering. So, it's not that Paul's saying you have to do this to be counted a Christian. They're Christians. They have a desire to give. And all Paul's doing is providing them the opportunity to give, to live up to their desire. And finally, we see in this first point that Paul encouraged Macedonia by building up the Corinthians for their intended generosity. The second part of verse 2, where it says, I have told the Macedonians that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Christian concern for the suffering of other Christians in one group stirred up the love of the saints in another group. It spread from one person to the other. Christian, secondly, Christian concern in Corinth inspired the Christian concern in Macedonia and in other churches. That's in the second part there of verse 2. Zeal, that word zeal that he uses there, passion, determination. Zeal of one community depended on the spark of the Holy Spirit. Now, When Paul shared, when the news of the struggling church at Jerusalem came to the Corinthians, I believe the Holy Spirit stirred up in them a desire to help. Because Paul didn't do it. Paul didn't do it in Macedonia, and I don't think he stirred them to action himself in Corinth. The Holy Spirit did that. That's what my concern for the Christian church is. Do you see the concern? Why are we not concerned for those who are suffering? Is the question that I ask. More close to home. Why is Grace Fellowship not very concerned about the suffering of others? (coughs) Too general? I ask myself, why am I 
not more concerned for people who are suffering all around me. Now, I don't limit these sufferings to just physical things, though that's the easy thing to focus on. But there are those who are suffering with the loss of loved ones. There are those who are suffering with the loss of financial ability. You know, they're really suffering through that. There are those who are suffering through mental and emotional trauma, whether it be from their childhood or whether it be from a bad marriage or whatever it may be. And when my heart looks at that situation with no compassion, I'm concerned for myself. And right, I should be. And so should you, Paul would say. Because the Holy Spirit stirs up concern for a fellow Christian who hurts. And I believe He even stirs up concern for those who are lost and hurting. And that's what really evangelism is all about, isn't it? Is that we love God. And because we love God, we love our fellow man. And Jesus would say the greatest form of love for them is to give them the bread of life. His story of the Good Samaritan is a good example of this. Remember the religious people who passed by? They passed by that hurting Jewish man because they were one was afraid he would be defiled if he touched him. The other was going to pray and he thought he couldn't be bothered. He was in a hurry. The Samaritan came, right? And what did Jesus say? He was the neighbor to this Jewish man. Why? Because he had godly concern. How did he have godly concern? Had the law taught him to do it? Had he been taught and trained by the law? Is that what Jesus said? Did he say, go and be like that man and obey the law? Is that what he said? No. He said, you go and do likewise implying that the law didn't teach the Samaritan to be faithful and to love his neighbor, but that God had taught him to love his neighbor, that he had been an example of the love of God. And so when I have a lack of that, very practical level, when I lack the love that I should have for those who are lost around me, spiritually lost, that says something about my love for Christ. Right? Because Jesus loves the lost. Matter of fact, He wept for them. He stood over Jerusalem as He headed to His his death and He cried out to the Father for them. And they were lost. And most of them were going to continue to be lost. And yet He was still hurt for them. Still broken for them. Still praying, crying for them. And so when I don't do likewise, it reflects a little about my relationship with Jesus. So this zeal for the community depends on the Spirit of God. The zeal in one man can spread to others. That's what I said in the opening when I was talking about the the song there. My lack of zeal for evangelism has spread to you. Okay? One of the reasons this church is not as outward focused as it should be is my fault. I've bore that before the Lord and repented and, and committed by His strength and His grace to help myself and you live in His grace, live out His grace, preach the gospel.
live the gospel for our fellow man. I've committed to that even this week as I've been thinking about what is it that keeps us from being zealous, being passionate, being broken, being consumed with those who are hurting around us. Part of it is that we don't have the relationship we like to think we do with, with the Lord. We don't. we don't. We're not as connected with Him as we should be. We need to repent. Secondly, second thought is that there's not an example among us for those things of being zealous for those that are hurting. If there was, that would spark others to be zealous. The fire kindled in one man's heart spreads to another man's heart and then on from there down through. That's why Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all that I've taught you. Why? Because He knew one man's passion becomes another's passion. That faithful man will help another be passionate. And the chain continues. The cycle is unbroken. Our concern comes from the Spirit. It comes and spreads through us to others. The gospel spreads from us when we believe it in our lives, when we fully believe it in our lives. What's the remedy for this lack of a zeal for the hurting world? I asked myself that question as I studied. What is the remedy? Work harder? Is that the remedy? It might sound good, and it might work for a short time, but it will not last. Working harder will not be the solution. What will be the solution? Connection with Jesus Christ. How do I connect with Jesus Christ? I I don't know any other way but through His Word and prayer and then with the community who is seeking to be connected with Him. I think those three things, above anything else, bring us into connection with Christ, which then gives us a zeal, a passion for those who are hurting. Not work, first and foremost. You know, that's the human gut level reaction though, isn't it? When I said these things, you thought in your heart. A lot of you did. I won't make you raise your hand. He's right. I'm going to work harder this week. Man, today when we go eat lunch at that restaurant, I'm sharing the gospel with that waitress. I'm doing it. I'm not saying all of that's bad. What I am saying is that won't last. We've all done that at camp, right? It's the Christian camp syndrome. At the last day of camp, everybody comes down front and says, we're all going to be different next year when we come. How are we going to be different? We're going to work harder. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to do, and they're all good things. But what happens about two months into it? Nobody's even thinking about it anymore. Why? Because we've made work, we've made work the solution. That's not the solution. Connection to Christ is solution. How did I get that? John chapter 15. Right? The connection chapter. Abide in me. And I knew that abide in Christ. How do I abide in Christ? His Word, prayer, community. These things help me stay with Christ. Help me abide in Him. Will they finally, prayer and Bible study and community, will they finally solve my problem? No. Say, well, that's what you just told us. Yes, 
But if your motivation is simply to pray more, read more, and be around Christian people more, that too will die. What in the end will motivate a Christian? Paul knows it better than us. The grace of God in my life. The love of God through Christ in me. That hunger. See, the secret is the Spirit dwells in a believer. The Spirit loves the Father and He loves the Son. And if He's in you, He brings out love for the Father and the Son in you. And so in the end, what I would say if you leave this message with this thought, I want to love Christ because He first loved me. Then I would say we're on the track of building a true foundation of love and grace in our life. And once that foundation is being laid, the Empire State Building can build on top of it, of fruit that just comes from the life. It's not a to-do list. We all want that to-do list. But that's not, in the end, that's not going to motivate us to zeal. Paul knew that about us and about the Corinthians. It could not be. That's why he said, I'm going to, your zeal has stirred them up. But look what he says next. Christian zeal or concern must not be allowed to falter is the third thing we see here in verse 3. Paul sends helpers. Look in verse 3. But I am sending the brothers, the brothers he mentioned in chapter 8. I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in the matter. This boasting is a good boasting. It's a boasting in the grace of God in their life. Not in them, not in Paul, but in Christ. So Paul sends helpers, very practical thing. He sends his helpers to encourage them by saying, Paul knows God's grace in your life. It will exhibit itself. That's really their message. Be prepared to let it come forward when the Macedonians come, when Paul comes to receive the gift. Boasting in the grace of God through Christ in the lives of the Corinthians inspired them. One of the things that uh, we did this morning by letting the children stand in front of you and sing and recite and do those things is a boast in Christ. That's really what it is. And it builds confidence in those young people. They say, I'm young, but I'm not useless. I don't have a lot yet, but what I've got, I'm going to give it to the Lord. It builds confidence in them so that in the day that they are called on, they can give account and they can stand up for Christ. There's confidence in that. Same thing with giving. Paul said, I'm boasting in the grace of God in your life and I'm sending these men to you early so you're not embarrassed and unprepared. I want you to be prepared. Not so they say, boy, the Corinthians are great. Remember, the Macedonians had already given way more than the Corinthians ever thought about. But so that everyone might say, God is great in His people and His grace in their life has become grace to those in need. That's really what it's about. So we encourage one another in the grace of God. And Paul did this by sending practical help and reminder to the people. Paul was concerned about the reputation of Corinth and more importantly about the ministry of the gospel in verse 4. Otherwise, if Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated. Humiliated. That word in the Greek means 
abased, put down on the lowest level, will be totally embarrassed. Why will we be embarrassed? Because the fruit is missing from the gospel message. The fruit is missing from our gospel message. If it doesn't produce anything, why should anyone else believe it to be true? John Lachlan and I were having lunch and we were talking about a man named Christian Hitchens who is a foremost thinker in the world today. He's an atheist from England. Um, I've read some things he's written. John's read some things, a lot of things he's written. What he always emphasizes is this. Christians say there is a God which will cause them to act A, do action A. When they don't do action A, it proves there is no God. Think about that. I know Seth talked with you about evangelism this morning, but it applies to everything. If we say there is a God and He's been gracious in my life and that graciousness causes me to have concern for those around me who are in need. And then the lost world looks and says they don't have any concern for the lost world. They don't have any concern for those in need. They have no brokenness over the saints who suffer and die all through the world. We might think the logical conclusion of that is simply they're not a good church. But see, what Hitchens gets and what this scripture is showing us is we are humiliated when there is no fruit of salvation. Why? Because it seems to make the gospel of no account. You've said this is what the gospel does because your God is powerful. When it doesn't do it, your God doesn't exist. Okay? It's not illogical. I don't want you to leave thinking these people are morons. They actually think about our faith probably more than we do. And the implications of how we all are a part of the gospel message. We are a part of the gospel message. You understand? That's what Paul's saying to Corinth. Corinth, the gospel is objective. It is true. He wrote that to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I presented to you the same gospel I received, and that is that Jesus Christ was born, lived, died, resurrected, ascended to heaven. The gospel is objective. It's a fact. What's subjective is its impact on each believer's life. And when you get a collective church, I'm going to say the evangelical Protestant church of America, not acting in accord with what they say they believe, to the thinkers of the world, they say, that God isn't a true God. If I believed the things they believed, I would live the life. That's what they say. So is grace fellowship the testimony we should be about grace giving? It's not simply about giving money. Remember, it's about the grace of God which causes us to give our whole lives for the gospel. You think about grace fellowship this week. Think beyond grace fellowship. Think about me. Think about you. What is the life? And look, all of you, if you do that at the heart level, all of you will do the same thing I did this week. You'll say, I don't measure up. I don't have the concern that I need to have. In this area, in this area, in this area, I'm failing. But you're not a failure. This is how you're not a failure. Because in your weakness, He is strong. 
And all that is required is not more work, but connection to the Savior. That's the truth. The connection to the Savior. I cannot do these things, but He can do them in me and through me. And so that is what the goal of Paul in this passage is. He's sending practical help to assure that they are connected to Christ purely so they might give out of their love for Him and for their fellow saints. When that happens among a few of us and then the church here, Calhoun County will be changed with the gospel. You say, we're only a hundred people. What are we going to do? Put him to the test. See how great his grace and his love is. Try to exhaust it. Connect to him. Relate with him. Be broken before him. That he might build you up in him, in the gospel, in his truth, and use you this week. He is the one who receives all glory and praise. That's why Paul ends Romans 11 with that great doxology. To him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Not to me. Not to Grace Fellowship. To him be glory forever. Amen. How do we practically encourage you? Thought I forgot. As I close, I'll get practical. We encourage you by adopting ministries that we have searched and researched that you can be a part of. That's one way we encourage you. Second way we encourage you. Weekly, we say there's an opportunity. Not weekly. I have to correct that. I forget often to tell you. Let me tell you again. There is opportunity to give. Giving your money is not for us, but for the Lord. It's a worship to Him. And there's an opportunity provided. A box in the back. Simple. The most simple offertory you'll ever hear. And that is offer your life and give of the fruit of it. And put it in the box. And He will use it for His kingdom. Okay? It's very simple. A third way that we offer you the opportunity to be involved practically with the giving of grace is that we encourage you to connect to one another in the body. We encourage that through home group, through this worship service and through home groups. It's really a function of home group. The purpose there is to connect believers to one another around the word and prayer and fellowship so that the grace of God kindled in one man's life spreads to another. There are other things we will do in the future to build this community and to build this love of the, of the Lord. But these things are enough to begin, right? These things are enough to get started. So let's start together. Let's move together in this connecting to Christ and letting the fruit come forward that He bears in our life. Let's pray together. Father, this very practical yet thought-provoking passage really has impacted me, caused me to ask a lot of questions about my own relationship with you. Lord, I thank you for that. It's a gift, um, and I often take it for granted that you would question me as I study your word, as I look there, as I read. Lord, it's a blessing. This is not a dead book, a history book, a a fable, a story. This is the power 
This is your power in our life. It's practical. And so, Lord, as they, this congregation, as they wrestle with these questions, am I connected to Christ? Let that question stand above all else. Because, Lord, if there's connection to you, fruit will appear in the life. It just happens. It does. And, Lord, though we have to be intentional and we have to continue to be pruned and sanctified, we have to continue to be encouraged and and brought to a remembrance of what it is to live in your grace, reality is, Lord, once we're in you, connected to you, abiding in you, resting in you, calling out your grace in our own life through preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel of grace to those around us, Lord, once that is occurring, the fruit naturally comes forward because your spirit is in us and it bears fruit. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this this, uh, time we've had together. The joy of seeing these children present their their memories and their thoughts and their their actions to you. Lord, the the time that you gave us to reflect over your word, we thank you for all these things. We see them as your grace in our life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have any questions.